Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we're here today for the Friday Conversation. Thank you for hanging out with us tonight. It's, uh, it's always fun to get a group together and just shoot the breeze. So very special tonight because I have a local author, Cassie Sanchez, is here with us. So I actually met her at a bookstore locally and have a copy of her book, a signed copy. So uh, it was really neat. Thank you, Cassie, for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, so we'll go ahead and go around the room. Uh, do, will you kick us off with introductions? Absolutely. So I'm Cassie Sanchez, and I live in the Southwest here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my debut fantasy, Chasing the Darkness, is out. And the second one is coming out hopefully the end of October. But I am a retired stay-at-home mom, which means my kids have flown the coop, which is lovely, and um, had a little bit of an identity crisis. And so uh, my son challenged me to start writing a book. And so here we are, <laughs> right in the middle of it. Nice. Okay. Hi, I'm Taylor from the booktube channel, maybe between the pages. What? <laughs> it's just, if you're watching this, you probably know who I am. So I'm Taylor from maybe between the pages. I am a co-host with Steve on page chewing the interview series that we do. Um, as well as I do, like I just said, my booktube channel. Um, I am also a, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Oh, no. <laughs> Thank you. You know my whole intro. I am an assistant editor at Before We Go blog as well. Uh, and yeah, I just, I do book stuff. So glad to be here. Nice. And Scott? Yeah, sure. I'm Scott Drakeford, uh, author of Rise of the Mages from Tor Books. Uh, just came out in February. Book two, oh God, book two, uh, probably out next year sometime, uh, but I don't have a, a firm timeline on that. Uh, and I'm just happy to be here, hang out on a Friday afternoon. Nice. And Josh? So I'm Josh. I run the BookTube channel Red Fury Books, uh, which I started about a year and a half ago. And just love to talk books by my day job is I'm a music educator. I teach high school orchestra and I read over a hundred books a year and just excited to talk to everybody today. Cool. Nice. Uh, so before we get started, I just want to say congratulations, Josh, on a thousand subscribers. So Thank you. Accomplishment. So good. Yeah. Job. Oh, congrats. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. What, is it, what does it feel like to, to have that number hit? It's, it's actually, I'll be, like I'll be honest, I didn't think I'd hit a thousand because my channel grew very slow. And actually, as if I look at old videos, I realize why it grew really slow. Um, <laughs> but uh, it took me over a, almost a year and five months to hit 500 subscribers. So I didn't think I'd ever hit a thousand like three months later after that. So it's really it's really grown the last 300, you know, uh, last three months, last 500 subscribers. It's just been it's been great getting to know more booktubers and being part of the community and everything. And I've uh, just really been enjoying it. So I'm uh, definitely happy to hit that milestone. It's a, it's a nice feeling to, to get there because I never thought I'd hit, hit it either. So it's nice. Me either. There's something special about a thousand where you're like, Oh, look, mom, I made it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so for, uh, for Cassie and, and uh, Scott, what does it feel like to write the second book? Is it, is it a we? Uh, how do you how do you follow it up? Is there more? You feel more pressure with the second one? I yes, I thought well since 
Chasing the Darkness is my first book, I have no clue how to write a sequel. So uh, there was a lot of pressure um, because, you know, that dreaded sequel, dreaded second movie, it doesn't always add up. So the pressure of making sure that this book would meet expectations because the first book I had no expectations. I didn't have, you know, followers or readers and now I do. So yeah, there was a lot more pressure. Plus my story was eventually originally going to be a, a duology and then it switched to a trilogy. So I had no idea where I was going. <laughs> so I had a lot to figure out. So yeah, the second book has been a little tricky. <laughs> and Scott, what about for you? Yeah. I mean, huh. Yes and no. So yes, for the same reasons, right? Um, Rise of the Mages was my first book as well. Uh, so from, you know, from that standpoint, it was a little difficult. But at the same time, I'd already established the world. I'd established the characters. I left book one knowing exactly where I was going to go. Um, I'd say the challenges for me, at least, were fitting, well, first, uh, fitting my plan for book two into my plan for the trilogy, right? Um, trying to make sure I got as far in the story as I, I needed to be or intended to be. Uh, and I still didn't do that, uh, but that's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Um, that, that's future Scott's problem. Um, but then, then it became, you know, a little bit of a struggle, mostly just for non-writing reasons, you know, uh, just life got busy. Uh, publishing is a, a difficult, uh, process and book one coming out and, uh, you know, all the activity associated with that or lack of activity associated with that can really get to you. Right. Um, so I'd say writing wasn't actually that bad. It's been editing that's been worse for me, uh, simply because of the psychological aspect of the writer's journey, if that makes sense. Mm. That does that make TMI? sense. <laughs> <laughs> I could go deeper and I fidget a lot, by the way, I'll, I'll like go in and out of the screen just cause I'm adjusting sitting Indian style and stuff. Sure. Or whatever we call that. <laughs> Crisscross applesauce. <laughs> That's what I remember. Crisscross applesauce. When I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, I I've heard in, many in people. Utah, so. Oh, go ahead. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. no, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I have a, a whole bunch of sayings I'm trying to delete from my vocabulary. But yeah, sorry. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, I was just going to say that I've heard a lot of authors say the second book, basically, what you all were saying is uh, a different kind of beast. Uh, for psychological reasons, as well as um, what you were saying about fitting it into the trilogy. I've heard a lot of authors say that, which is interesting because authors seem to have such a different way of doing things. It depends on the person, right? So some people like PL, who is also a co-host of uh, Page Doing, he has planned out like his entire series. He knows exactly what's going to happen for the whole thing. But I've talked to many authors, including we had an interview with Ken Liu, who his series, The Dandelion Dynasty, is just, I'll never stop screaming about it. I was surprised. He was like, yeah, I figured a lot of it out, you know, along the way. <laughs> you know, I needed to figure out how to fit this into the plot later. And it was basically a later, later Ken's problem, like you said, Scott. So <laughs> I think that it's interesting to hear the different way that people, ways that people approach it. 
because I myself am a planner. So I don't, I think the anxiety would drive me crazy to be like, oh, I'll figure it out later, you know? Yeah, yeah I'm total type A personality, but um, so it is kind of stressful not knowing where I was going. In fact, I had like a week of, I just took a break from the book two because I didn't know where book three was going. I just couldn't write, I couldn't write the end because I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. So if I was to, hopefully the next series I write, I will have a better understanding, at least a flyby of where I'm going versus, oh, I should have probably figured that out in book one since it's a very par big part of book two or whatever. So yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. And imposter syndrome is so very real. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd well, be and I didn't mean that to say one is better than the other. I'm just saying that there's a different oh, yeah, way to no. get there, you know, because yeah. those, those stories I mentioned are, are fantastic. See, I'm a, I'm a planner and that still hit me, right? Like the, I I'll have, I'll have my entire book, uh, mapped out scene by scene, chapter by chapter. But then when I'm writing that all goes out the window, right? Like it, the pantser takes over, it, it becomes what it becomes. And I, I have to constantly write, edit my outline and then edit what I've written just all kind of at the same time. I'm, I'm always curious, um, just as a musician, I always like hearing other artists talk about their craft. Um, for both of you, do you have a, like I write this time of day, every day type of schedule, or do you go through spurts where you're having 12 hour writing days or what's, what's your process? I'm always curious about writers with that, because I know as a musician, we have to practice every day. It's not one of those that we can take days off you know, of our, especially instrumentalists like me. So what are, what are your processes? I'm always curious about that. Uh, well, for me, I find that I'm more creative in the morning than in the afternoon. I'm always tired. So morning is my creativity time. So that's when I like to write. I try, I think I read it in Steve, Stephen King's memoir, which is a fabulous book about writing like 2000 words a day. And I attempt that, you know, if I hit a thousand, two thousand, I'm happy. Four thousand, I'm like doing the happy dance, celebrating and probably drink a lot of coffee. But I just I just would write, you know, maybe a chapter or scene, whatever it looked like in the morning. And then um, the following morning, I would try to then kind of just quickly edit that so I knew where I was going and then start writing again and continuing the story. So I'm a very, I guess, lineal writer. I just go from beginning kind of to end. Um, but kind of like Scott was saying, once you're done writing, like I haven't written anything in, in a while because I've been working on promoting the first book, editing the second book, you know, and just doing all these, the business side of writing. So the getting writing every day has not happened, which I would prefer, but you know, business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. That That's actually an interesting analogy, right, Josh? Um, having to to practice every day i i'd say most people who are involved even if you're not a writer right you're doing something every day to exercise your craft and your your sense for story and your your sense for building a story whatever it is there's definitely a, a big periods uh where i'm writing a lot and then not writing a lot whether it's you know cassie like you said for promotion or or whatever else um, I mean, for me, for most of the years I've been writing, I've had a very demanding full-time job. 
you know, first as a, an engineer, then in tech and other stuff. Um, and then, you know, I had a kid and my wife and I, uh, both worked full time. So we were kind of juggling that and work. Um, and then more recently, uh, I've become the, uh, homeschool dad. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to juggle, you know, uh, homeschool moving to, we just moved from Massachusetts to Washington, um, and then trying to fit writing in where you can. So, yeah, I mean, I have very good days, you know, where maybe my wife doesn't have a lot of meetings and I can kind of sit and, and get some stuff done. Uh, and then stretches of days where it's just fighting my child, my seven-year-old <laughs> all day. What about you, Josh? When do you, uh, when do you practice? Well, evenings, um, I get up, I usually mornings or I'm a runner. So I'm up five days a week to run in the morning. So there's not much time for anything behind besides that. But usually in the evening, I still try to put about an hour in every day because as a, my instrument is trumpet. And as a trumpet player, you can't let the musculature disappear. <laughs> that embouchure disappears. You know, you take weeks off. It's almost like starting all over again. So I try to do that myself, um, but I'm not as much active as a performer as I used to be, but it's just kind of part of who I am. So I still try to keep, keep at it. Actually, I've always been curious about instruments that you can't plug in to, that's what I'm looking for, like electric things to practice. Because when I was younger, I played drums and I didn't have the electric drum set. So uh, bless my parents' hearts, they put up with me practicing drums and my neighbors for years, <laughs> probably about 10 years. <laughs> they were probably so happy when I when I stopped playing. But uh, and then I also noticed, you know, where I live in Japan, a lot of people are in apartments. And so <laughs> there's this one trumpet and one trumpet and one saxophone player who are the politest <laughs> players I've ever seen because they go to the park and they very quietly kind of, you know, like practice <laughs> quietly in the corner. It's the cutest thing I've ever seen um, in order to probably keep that musculature like you were saying. So I'm wondering, you know, I guess America's a little different when you have your own house. But when you have something like that, that has to make noise, um, is there a time when it's a no-no to practice? Like, OK, I have to do it before 9 p.m., that kind of thing. I guess it depends on how respectful you are of your neighbors. <laughs> I always did. I always, I would never play before 10 a.m. and I would never play after 8 p.m. Um, just to be respectful for my neighbors. But um, I do remember one time I was in an apartment and I started playing and someone started banging on the wall and I just went straight over and I said, listen, this is what I do. You're just going to have to get over it. <laughs> I'm going to be playing trumpet whether or not you bang on the wall or not. So just realize I'll be respectful of the hours. But, you know, if it's during the day, this is what I have to do to to be able to do what I do. So, uh, yeah, it's got to be tough like that. I mean, now I have my own home so I can play all hours if I felt like it. But, um, yeah, definitely tougher. I, I can commiserate with those uh, <laughs> those guys going to the park to have to practice just to get their time in. <laughs> people here are very very polite you know they don't want to upset someone else so um I yeah i knew that when i was there i was i was so impressed i was in japan several years ago and just the mindfulness of everybody was was uh 
It was fantastic. I'm actually going back in June, so I'm excited to. Oh. Excited yeah. to go back. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where are you gonna go? Oh, sorry. I'm, I'm not sure yet. I only have. Um, I have. I'm gonna do about three weeks in Asia. I have a, mm -hmm. a flight into Tokyo and a flight out of Seoul because I know I want to go to Japan and, and South Korea. But beyond that, I have no itinerary at this point. I just had to book the mm -hmm. flight early because of frequent flyer miles. So um, I shall see. I'm still figuring it all out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually surprised how little of Asia I've seen thus far. We had a big, uh, my husband and I had a big backpacking trip planned and then the panini happened. So, you know, that all got canceled. But <laughs> um, I haven't been to Southeast Asia yet and I would love to. So that is definitely a goal. I have, you know, been to Korea and some other places, but yeah, a backpacking trip would be real fun one day. What took y'all to Japan in the first place? Uh, well, my husband is Japanese, so his his birth. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but for me, um, basically, when I was young, thanks to my dad's job, I'm very, very lucky I was able to travel. And he was doing some projects. So he, he works at NASA, so he was doing projects with JAXA when I was young. And so... Uh, there were a couple opportunities to, you know, basically while he was working, I gallivanted with my mom and um, I really, I think I was elementary school, maybe third grade. And I kind of just fell in love with parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And then in high school, I studied abroad here um, and my company just randomly chose Fukuoka. So I didn't choose where I was going to be. Um, which is not such a popular city. You know, I thought I'd be going to Tokyo or something. Um, and then I fell in love with Fukuoka. So I went back to the States and did university and lived there for a while. And then after I was just kind of doing the, the daily grind, you know, a job in America, I was like, you know, kind of want to go back to Fukuoka. So I picked up and I moved here and uh, wasn't supposed to be this long. But now I met my husband and now I'm stuck here. <laughs> so... <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. I think I've been here almost six years now. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. That's very mm -hmm. cool. NASA's legit. Yeah. I, I like to, I'm insufferable. I like to tell everyone that he, <laughs> do you know the James Webb Space Telescope? This, this of course. Thing? Mm -hmm. He's the the project manager for that. He's one of the top oh, guys. Wow. No That's way. Cool. So um, we had a live when it launched last Christmas and, uh, you know, so many years of work. For yeah. him and his team. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, the, back in the day, w once upon a time, I was a mechanical engineer at a defense contractor. So uh, mm. did a lot of um, what's called ESS testing for uh, military equipment. So it, mm. basically, you know, NASA has to do that times however many uh, mm -hmm. multiples for things going to space, right? So I have a a healthy respect for people who make it to the level of, of NASA and sticking in NASA for quite a long time. That's really cool. It's a lot of work. I remember it got pushed back so many times. And <laughs> it's funny you say contractor because the number of times my dad was like, contractors, you know, <laughs> get yeah. the house. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, 
Inge- but, I mean, engineering yeah. really is stressful. Like I, I can only mm. imagine like uh, what what your dad would say, but good Lord, you know, designing a, a screw that goes into a, a spaceship or whatever and just praying to God that doesn't, that's not the part that fails when it blows up, you know, it, it's really stressful. <laughs> yeah, the amount of testing is insane and the logistics even, like the James Webb was huge. And so the, they had to, like even transporting it to its launch point had so many logistical issues that I'm sure engineers had to work through. Like it's too heavy for a bridge, so we can't go over a bridge, you know, or it can't be in this part because, you know, the, the width of the thing that's going to be holding it can't fit through here. So it's, it has a lot, a lot connected to it. You're absolutely right. It's a team effort. So. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a, I think that's what most people don't realize about stem and and engineering disciplines it's like i at least young scott was like oh cool i'm gonna get to go build like you know trucks and and airplanes and whatever and you get in and especially at at, you know the the bachelor level uh bachelor's degree level in the u.s you get in and it's like oh hey go design this wire harness for this one specific (laughs) part of you know this uh one tiny little whatever drone (laughs) it's like oh okay cool (laughs) so exciting yay yeah yeah and that's your life yeah Yeah. Uh, uh, scott the bob booktuber said uh, check out the philippines while there one of the most beautiful countries with some of the very most wonderful people like my Mm. in-laws singapore and hong kong are also highly recommended to visit while you're there Love to Philip go to Hong Kong. Yes. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, Philip asks, is it just my imagination or do a lot of us bookish folks love traveling? Something about the longing to experience other places also travels help writing. Hmm. I can't speak for the writing part, but the other part for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you guys have a favorite place you've been? Even if it's, you know, within your own country. I'm just curious. Besides Disneyland, um, <laughs> my mom is actually from Australia, so we've gone there a couple of times, and it's always been a really fun adventure. The, the plane ride is awful, but um, once you get there and over jet lag, it's fun. And then I, I love Hawaii. I love going there. So those are my mm. favorite spots. Hawaii looks beautiful. Never been, but looks gorgeous. It really is. It is. It, it's it's every bit as good as advertised absolutely (laughs) yeah love it yeah for my 50th i was supposed to go to hawaii and jump out of a plane and um because i didn't want to do it here because it's ugly and if i'm gonna die i might as well be in paradise already (laughs) so um i was really positive about the experience but yeah with you know covid that all got messed up so instead for my 50th birthday i got another tattoo so you know that's cool but i will jump out of a plane eventually i plan on it Cool. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you could tell, but I approve. <laughs> so yeah. there's my, it's actually my logo and a saying from my book. My husband's not a big fan of tattoos, but since I was turning 50 and not able to, you know, launch out of a plane, he, he's like, okay, fine, whatever. Get it <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Scott? Any favorite places? Oh, man. The last three, four years was supposed to be, you know, my, era of travel and tattoos but uh covid happened and i'm i'm still pretty hunkered down um so i i haven't done a lot of either in the last few years but yeah i've been to 
Hawaii a, a few times. Uh, my wife and I uh, went and just absolutely loved Kauai, Maui. I mean, I if I could afford it, I'd I'd be living there for sure. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I've been other places, but uh, my experiences there weren't weren't necessarily the tourist uh, type. But my my travel lately has really been where we uh, have lived. We, uh, my wife and I, both grew up in Utah. Uh, and then moved out to Massachusetts to the Boston area for a job she took. And that's when I kind of quit my corporate thing and uh, decided to give writing a, a full-time try for a while. And then that turned into writing plus homeschooling um, really quick, uh, like six months after we moved there. Then we just moved to uh, Washington where we wanted to be uh, in the first place near Seattle. So uh, honestly, this summer, it has been the best of my life. Like if people from temperate climates say, oh yeah, we still have winter. Oh yeah. Our winter's still hot. It's not, they're lying. Like the, the summer in even just, I can't even imagine Albuquerque. Right. But, uh, in Utah and Massachusetts, it's just awful. It is so bad. You don't want to go outside. You don't want to do anything. There's bugs everywhere. And then the winter is just frozen most of the time. And like, yeah, maybe there's a little sunlight, but it doesn't matter because you don't want to be outside anyway. Man, Washington is where it's at. I'm, I'm telling you what, it's been like perfect weather for the four months we've been here. I might be heading into the sad season and I might regret it, but for these last four months, it's been worth it. I like the, the phrase sad season. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like that. That's just what they tell me. I don't know. What about you, Josh? Any favorite places? Mine was definitely Japan. Um, my experience was tainted a little bit, though, because I was I was actually there as a citizen ambassador for uh, like five days. I was in Sendai, which is northern part of the country. So in addition to I mean, the Japanese generally treat you extremely well. It was even more since I was a citizen ambassador. And then when everybody found out I was a teacher, you know, they say you're never treated as well as when you go home. Well, those people haven't been to Japan because <laughs> I was treated better in Japan than I'd ever been anywhere in my entire life. So that's I've been longing to go back. It's been seven or eight years. So definitely looking forward to that because, uh, yeah, very memorable. Very, very memorable. And it's an interesting place to be. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting place to yeah, um, let me not talk over you. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's, it's something uh, you had mentioned about teachers, uh, the, the way that uh, teachers are respected, uh, different, you differently. Yes, yes. Teachers are, you know, I'm sure everyone knows the word sensei, but there's a lot of respect rolled up into that word, um, much more than the word just teacher in English. So teachers are viewed as a really key um, figure for kids. Um, and I, I'm trying to stay positive here, but there's, there's no way I'm going to be a teacher in the States. Let's just put it that way. I have zero desire to take this job over there. <laughs> so, um, you know, my, my husband would like to move to the States and we're in process visas are a nightmare, but, uh, I'm looking at other options, translation, things like that, because I'm, I'm just not going to teach in the States. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's interesting living here. It's um, the respect is definitely 95% of the time people are respectful. But when you live here, there's some people that don't want you to stay. 
let's just put it that way. Um, they're happy when you visit, but they don't want you to stay um, and make mixed children. <laughs> so <laughs> I have met a few of those uh, grandpas a couple times. <laughs> um, had a bus driver be real nasty to me for no reason and stuff. So it's a different experience when people realize you're going to be here, not just like, hey, you know, I'm visiting. But I would say 95% of the time, you know, people are, are lovely, lovely here. But um, yeah, Japan is full of contradictions. <laughs> I won't go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. <laughs> and uh, Brandy uh, from the other room says here in Albuquerque, there is always one week, a couple of times a year when we experience four seasons in one week. In That's true. <laughs> that. It can start 100 degrees and by the end of the week, it's snowing good times. Yeah. Can't confirm. Yep. That's true. <laughs> Uh, and uh, AP is going to going to bed early, so. Oh no! Um, good night. We can't. He's not on the the screen, so we can't keep him up past his bedtime today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he always stays up real late. Yeah, it's three thirty in the afternoon, my time. <laughs> <laughs> That's early. Yeah. We're so we're so used to being all around the world, but I swear time zones oh my god like yeah this, it's rough <laughs> yeah that is rough you know what's what time, rough what time is, is it dating yeah. time. oh sorry yeah. no, I, was just gonna, time? I was just gonna ask taylor what time it is there <laughs> 7 30 a.m okay so here before work so saturday morning i was saying before we went live that i uh stayed up too late watching baby animals on Netflix. <laughs> so, so I don't know if anyone's, there's a really cute thing called wild babies. And um, there was a, a episode about a baby otter that needed to be watched before bed um, in the wee hours of the morning. So thank goodness for coffee. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Cassie and Scott, why, why fantasy? What did you decide to write fantasy? All right. Um, well, let's see. I think for me, I was actually writing a different, going a different direction. Um, when I first started learning the craft and whatnot, I was going a different direction. And then my boys were playing a video game one day and there was a character on this video game that just really intrigued me. And you know, when that creativity bug just smacks you upside the head. And so I was just sitting at the table and I wrote a scene that became chapter four of the book. And so it just kind of, it fit that it was fancy because of course the video game they were playing was Overwatch, which is, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but um, definitely like sci-fi fantasy kind of idea. And, you know, writing fantasy is for me, I love, I love to, I love to read fantasy one, um, especially romantic fantasy, which is what I'm, I have a romance subgenre. But I just love the escape part of it I, um, and writing stuff that, you know, yes, you, there are rules and laws you kind of have to obey, but really sky's the limit on what you want to do. Like I would never write historical fiction as way too much research. <laughs> like I just don't have any desire to do that. But with fantasy, it's just it's just more fun for me. I've always, you know, wanted to be like, you know, Princess Leia kind of a thing. Love Star Wars, love Harry Potter all of that. So, you know, Washington, I'm like, oh, vampires, let's go up there, you know, like, so yeah, I have a few issues, but that's probably why I write fantasy. <laughs> hmm. 
That's a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much you can see behind me. My books are at a distance and in a jumble. Um, cause as mentioned, we just moved and I've been, uh, spent most of my time here, uh, doing things like building 400 feet of fence and stuff like that. Um, and, and not organizing my books. I'm just not an organized person anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I grew up reading fantasy, right? Like, um, uh, the first and some of these authors have, have since, uh, uh, or at least I have since found out they're problematic, but, uh, the first book my dad got me to read where it, it really became like my thing was the pawn of prophecy by David Eddings. Um, and you know, I, I think like a lot of people that end up in the, the reading and, and writing world, uh, you know, I, I didn't quite fit in with, uh, you know, the other kids at school and whatever, that kind of thing. And so it was really awesome to, to find a, a world, even if it was a made up world where, you know, people who, who were like me, I guess, didn't quite fit in or, uh, whatever else could become something else. And so, uh, that was, you know, that was a, a big deal for me as a, as a kid and, and into my teens, I found the wheel of time. Um, I, I probably reread the wheel of time upwards of 10 times, uh, especially the, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, I, I read what we had, you know, and what my, what my dad brought home. And so, or what I could find at the library that was like three miles away. So, um, I read the wheel of time a lot cause we had them and I, I absolutely loved it. Um, and it just, it, it, it made, it's one of the very few things that made a positive difference for me. And, and, you know, I could, I could name a whole bunch of others like, uh, Lee Modisett was big. I read a lot of his books a lot of times. Um, and they're super fun and very, uh, deep and well thought out. Um, so yeah, when I, when I decided that, uh, I wanted to turn my passion for books into writing, it was just pretty natural to go to, one of the several that I enjoy and, and love, but really the first one that kind of captured my heart, you know, and, and really did so much good for my psyche and my uh, ability to cope with the world and things like that. So um, I don't know, I don't know it, it, TBD whether I've, I've managed to, to do that for anybody else, but that was kind of my goal, you know, is to contribute to uh, that, traditional uh, fantasy sense, kind of try to blend it with some more modern, uh, maybe Joe Abercrombie uh, feel. Um, but yeah, that's where I ended up. And I'm, I'm glad I did. I've loved every minute of it. And Josh, why do you enjoy reading fantasy? It's funny you mentioned Eddings. He was probably my favorite in high school. That wasn't where I started, though. I was always a big reader. I read i don't remember when i learned how to read because it was before school and only child read a whole lot you know because i was by myself a lot and i do remember very clearly i was in sixth grade and i walked into my middle school library and there was the book of three by lloyd alexander and it had this figure on a horse with this skeleton skull and these antlers and just my imagination just went like that 
And I read that series, The Chronicles of Pride Day, and I actually reread them this year and they're still delightful. But Lloyd Alexander and then C.S. Lewis and then Tolkien. And once I hit Tolkien, I was just hooked and uh, just read a lot of the big names in the 80s. I loved Eddings. I've since reread him and I still love the Belgarian. The rest of it, he's he gets quite a bit formulaic as you get into his back catalog, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah. you know, I actually took a big break from reading fantasy from probably about 2000 to almost about 2019. I was reading a lot of other things, a lot of I got into crime fiction for a while. I went through this phase where I just read like every classic you could find. And then you mentioned the Wheel of Time. I read the Wheel of Time as soon as the pandemic hit. And ever since then, it's just been catch up and it's been driving what I've been reading most. And uh, it's been fun because I have all these new series that I haven't discovered. I mean, how cool is it in the last two years I've discovered Robin Hobb and Joe Abercrombie? I mean, it's it's been such an amazing thing. And I'm starting Steven Erickson very soon. So it's it's been a just a joy to come back to this genre. There really are so many good books, so many good books. And that's, you know, it's daunting as an author to be like uh, trying to find your place there. You know, here's mine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I think that's the thing about fantasy is I've always been a fantasy reader in some ways, but kind of like you, Josh, I dabbled in other things and everything. But uh, but once I made my booktube channel, that changed my reading drastically, like the books that I was aware of and the things that catch my eye. Um, I wouldn't have found, you know, well, I mentioned earlier, like the Dandelion Dynasty wouldn't have found that without booktube, I don't think. Uh, so it's interesting to see the types of fantasy that I would go towards now. Whereas if I were still just going to the bookstore and picking something up, uh, I think I, I would read differently. Not that it's a good or bad thing, but I'm very grateful for the things that I've found through my channel. I don't know if Steve and Josh, you found that or, you know, once having a channel, it changed. I know for Steve, it probably did, right? Because you were mostly horror before all of us beat you over the head with <laughs> fantasy, you know? <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Yeah, Is, has it changed for you, Josh, with your channel? It hasn't stopped me from reading all the genres I loved, but I do read more fantasy than I did before. I don't know if it's because of the channel or just because I follow so many other channels that talk about fantasy and they just, you know, it's it's all infectious when you hear someone talking about a book they love and you know, uh, like I watched Philip's video today about the the Janie Words the her first book, Curse of the Mistwraith, and that series, immediately I was thinking, oh, I need to read that immediately. And it happens <laughs> so quickly, you know, when you just follow all these people that talk about that genre most. But I still, I do a monthly wrap up and I usually average, you know, 10 to, 10 to 12 books a month. And it's still generally about like four genres a month. So I'm still able to read a lot more, but fantasy is kind of the driving force of, of my TBR right now. <laughs> yeah, it changes a lot. Yeah, a lot of, you know, you, every all this enthusiasm you can't help but get wrapped up in it time to time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantasy is a juggernaut <laughs> in yeah. the booktube community, I think. <laughs> and there's, there's so many, there's so much variation in the genre, too. There's so many different shades in the genre. There's so many different things you can do with it. So it is very versatile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that, you know, you going back to your question about why fantasy, I think 
that's another aspect, right? Is like you're not necessarily tied to any given real uh, society or time period or technology or what have you. Uh, you're you're very free to explore whatever themes are important to you, right? Like, and I don't even know how how strongly this comes through in my book, but a big driver of the themes of my book was, and this is, this might get a, a little deep and we can uh, skirt over this if you'd like, uh, but was leaving Mormonism. Um, so I, I grew up Mormon as did my wife, very Mormon, like OG Mormon families. My real last name is Smith. Um, uh, uh, so yeah, you know, deciding that that wasn't for me and, and going a different direction with, with life was a big deal. Right. And, and, uh, required a lot of, uh, a, a lot of, a lot of work to get through. Um, and you know, the, the popular saying, uh, men will blank rather than go to therapy. Well, you know, mine is Scott will write an entire trilogy rather than go to therapy. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, I, I mean, jokes aside, dealing with existential questions is, uh, and, and whatever else, right. But existential questions in particular for me, it is so interesting in a fantasy world because you can set it up and set your characters up in any given way uh, that you need to to explore those themes and ex explore how people might act in in given situations. Uh, so I, you know, beyond just escapism, which I think is very valid and and awesome, uh, I do think it's very powerful for the fact that you can explore so many deep, meaningful things without necessarily the connotations that a you know a contemporary work would would come with. That's a really good point. It allows us, you know, a distance to deal with things that make us uncomfortable. You know, I think it's that's a a really big pull for fantasy for many people. So you can, you know, deal with things that if it were in a contemporary setting might upset people, not upset people, but might be inappropriate to talk about because of the context connected to, you know, a real world situation or place or people. But fantasy allows you to just kind of take a step back and then really dig into that. Yeah. Upset people is fair. <laughs> <laughs> we'll I leave like, it there. <laughs> I like the way you, I like the way you said that. How it just puts a little bit of distance, you know. So fantasy writer can talk about a very controversial or meaningful theme, but there is that bit of distance when it's in a fictional world that maybe can make people think about it more empathetically or whatever. I, I like the way you put that. That's yeah. great. I know Eric's people talk about Erickson doing that a lot. I haven't taken the leap into um, that world <laughs> at this point in my reading journey, maybe one day, one year, you know, I'll dedicate it to that. But um, I know a lot of people talk about that aspect of his writing. Really? Well, I'm starting in November. Uh, we haven't announced it yet, but there's uh, I have three other booktubers that we're going to read this series together and have live streams and talk about it. And we're hoping to have, you know, a veteran join us on each video to kind of, you know, 
dry our tears and help our ease our frustrations on all of that. But uh, it's one of those I was building up to. Am I ready to read Malazan? And then was kind of scared. And then finally, now that I decided that I'm going to do it, I'm really excited. So, and a lot of it is for that thematic depth. You know, when I see these just people just glow about it and talk, you know, use words like profound and how they were just changed by this series. I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, it is a journey. It's for sure. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mihir is here from fantasy book critic. Uh, what are some of your favorite crime books as a fantasy fan? It's rare to find fellow readers who love who read and love crime fiction. Is that for me? I think so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, my my go to is is Michael Connolly. He is the most consistently good author I've read in any genre. I swear the guy doesn't know how to write a bad book. He's written like thirty five of them. Um, he's just perfectly plotted, but still has, you know, some thematic depth and great characters and so forth. He's my favorite. And I like Dennis Lehane a lot as well. Um, those are probably my top two recommendations. And then probably Don Winslow would probably be my third. I haven't read as much of him, but what I have read, is pretty, pretty impressive. And, uh, our friend PL Stewart and PL check your, your DMS. If you want to join us, uh, mentions indie fantasy, indie books, period have changed the game. Mm -hmm. That has been a huge shift on my channel ever since um, Lana, another friend of ours, uh, her channel is Lauren Lullabies. Go check it out. Plug her. But um, <laughs> she uh, runs the Indie Accords uh, readathon every year in the summer. And it's really taken on a life of its own this year. And it's its own thing. It's not just for the summer now. Uh, so there's a discord just for indie and self-pub books now. Uh, but after participating in that, I was like, oh, my God, there's so many good ones <laughs> in this this world that I haven't tapped into yet. And then my TBR just exploded. So <laughs> it's positive and negative, I suppose. <laughs> but, yeah, I'd say almost half of my TBR, TBRs every, every month are indie now. So. Okay. Uh, Scott and, and Cassie, what were your experiences with publishing? So I actually, um, Chase in the Darkness, I published through a hybrid publisher. So, and I had learned about them because I had another friend who published with them um, more. She did a nonfiction and I had learned about this company. It's called Morgan James. So I would do the, the hybrid publishing route. So if you're not familiar with that, they want you to have some of the risk, the financial risk. So um, I went that route and it's, it's been, it's been great. It's, it's, I had a few expectations that haven't been met, but that's probably more on my end than theirs. However, the sec, the next two books in the series, I will be self-publishing those because I'm two in the hole <laughs> to, to continue with them anyway. So yeah, I'm going to do the next two on my own and, and see how that goes. And Scott, what about you? How much do you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Sounds like there's an iceberg there. Yeah, I'm intrigued. <laughs> um, hmm. Let me settle in on this one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, publishing. Publishing is an iceberg. Um, <clears throat> I think so. God, where do you even start? Um, my my so my journey started. I, I started writing in 2012. Got an agent in 2015. 
uh, got a book deal in 2017. My book was supposed to come out in 2019. Um, and it got pushed to uh, 2020 because they wanted to have more of my books to release faster. Um, but then ended up deciding that that was we weren't going to do that anyway because you know they stopped kind of doing that model. So I was supposed to come out in 2020, um, and, and then the pandemic happened and things got pushed and blah blah blah. Uh, it moved to 20 several different dates in 2021, and then finally uh, February 2022. So finally got a book out. That's great. Um, and, you know, I've got book two. I'm, I'm currently in final edits. And so that's uh, about in my publisher's hands again. Um, so that's my personal journey, right? Like took for how, how friendly are we with uh, uh, adult words here? Go for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, that's my journey, right? In a nutshell, in terms of chronology. Um, so I, I think the thing I'll, uh, yeah, right. I think the thing I'll point out is in the world, well, I'll, I'll say first that indie publishing is freaking awesome, right? Um, I, I, I have at least as many, uh, indie published friends uh, or self-published friends as, as trad published. And I just am in awe of everything they do do uh, to not just write their books and make sure they're, you know, everything that they want them to be, but then, you know, design and, and manage the entire project and, and get them out in front of the world. Like it's hard. There's so goddamn many books out there, you know, like it, it really is hard. So um, major props to everybody doing self-publishing um, or anything in between. Right. Uh, I think what people may not realize about trad publishing, however, you know, everybody talks about, oh, yeah, you're giving up control, but you get this, that, and the other. There are, especially for debuts, there are lead titles and non-lead titles. And this does not always correspond to, uh, you know, like the advance you're given when you sign on, uh, doesn't, doesn't correlate with necessarily uh much other than as far as i can tell uh your editors pull in the publisher uh in the publishing company itself how much that editor likes your book and the temperament of the senior management at your publisher at whatever time your book is ready to go right um and wherever they decide to spot it based on their big names and you know uh, think about the names that are with Thor, they, they prioritize those. Um, so long story short, there are lead titles and there are non-lead titles for, for debuts. I'm sure that's the case uh, with, with non-debuts too, but I'll focus on, on debuts. And I don't think people quite understand how close to being self-published or hybrid published or whatever you want to call it, a non-lead trad title is. Um, and yeah, so so I, I I'll, I'll walk a little bit of a, a line there, right? But pay attention, and you can you can absolutely tell there will be I don't know depending on the, the publisher three to four years, but they'll call a title, they'll send out like a shit ton of arts, they'll they'll do a whole bunch of marketing, they'll send them to 
conventions and have them sign at conventions. They'll set them up with, um, you know, their big names on, on events and signings and in conversation with and all this kind of thing. And they'll put them up for awards. They'll put them up for this, that, and the other. And then there's some that, it, you know, you, you get distribution, which is amazing. Um, and you get the, the power of the, the design group and you get a, a really awesome cover and you get awesome editing and proof editing. You have a lot of really smart people involved with the production of your book from, from beginning to end. And that's valuable. Like there's, there's no way, you know, I, or I think anybody else could say that's not valuable. Um, but it really is interesting. Pay attention from now on when you see a book coming out and try to categorize them. Is this lead? Is this not a lead? And then try to look at how much of those, uh, hype things happen for any any given book um but yeah so i think yeah i watched i watched a lot of really awesome authors go into trad before i i came out even right um go into to trad publishing and uh you know with all these sky high home, hopes and dreams and all oh, this is my my golden ticket uh, and, and it turned out it really was a golden ticket and only one person went home with everything. Um, and I, and it, it was a little bit, honestly, it was a little bit demoralizing to see that happen time and time again, as I was, you know, being, my dates were being pushed back and I was about to, it was my turn to, to see what was going to happen. And I was like, oh no, oh no. <laughs> like I, you know, you feel what's coming. Um, but all that said, it has been overall very positive um and i think that's mostly because you know no matter the challenges you come up against your book is still out in the world um and you meet awesome people like you guys uh you know this is this is awesome i i get to, to hang out with people who love books um and and talk about what i love um and i've met some amazing authors and uh you know reviewers and uh, you know, I'm here because, uh, Beth, uh, Tabler, Tabler, Tabler. um, I only read people's yeah. names nowadays. Uh, she <laughs> was kind enough to, uh, you know, pick up my book and liked it. And so we've talked here and there, you know, it's, uh, that's by far been the most rewarding part of publishing. Um, and, and probably the biggest reason I would go the route I went again, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to answer any questions as accurately as I can. I'm just, I'm curious about that with, um, obviously Tor is a very major publisher. What kind of percentage of books are what you consider the lead books versus the non-leads, like on a given month? What would, what do you think that is? On a, in a given month? Um, Good question, uh, but the answer is a little different than the question, I think. So it depends, uh, and it depends on what the uh, publisher is doing, right? And and so uh, speaking strictly of debuts, I think that there have in the past been a lot more debuts that were picked up and published, and therefore a lot more that were non-leads, right? As far as I can tell, and they, and they don't tell me this, right? Like, I, and they don't tell anybody this. They don't tell anybody anything. Like, I, I, I don't even know what my sales are for my book, to be honest with you. Hmm. Um, 
and that's there, there's some other things uh, associated with that. I honestly don't care right now. Uh, I haven't pushed hard on that. Um, but this is this is just you know the the gospel of publishing according to Scott. Um, <laughs> but as far as I can tell, there are like three to four um, lead debuts from tour in any given year right now. Hmm. Um, and and that is further muddied by uh, and again this is just observational i think that tor is really really smart right uh, i think uh there are some really good publishers out there but from a business perspective i think tor is doing something really intelligent they're going out and getting um successful indies right and pulling them in and publishing their books and putting their you know their hype engine behind those books. So um, the Atlas Six was a recent one that came out right after my book. That was a, a definitely a lead. Um, they just picked up um, Travis Baldry. Yeah, What's that his name. Yeah, Legends and Lattes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Legends and Lattes. Mm -hmm. They just picked up that on that model of you know find a, a, a really successful um, self published book and and pick it up. I don't know what their criteria are for which ones they pick up and which ones they don't. I think Orbit's doing some of this and some other publishers as well. Um, I'm so bad with names, but somebody named Alex that does martial arts in Massachusetts, I think he recently got picked up. Um, but they're also pulling authors from other um, genres, from, from other markets, and giving them deals, right? And so uh, to write uh, sci-fi and fantasy, which is awesome, um, but they're also not true debuts, at least in in my mind, right? Like um, Christopher Buellman, freaking brilliant writer, uh, came over from I think he was doing what horror before, um, and and now wrote the Black Tongue Thief, which is a marvelous book. Um, Rollins came over from thrillers uh, or whatever he writes um, to do these something Crown Star something Crown I don't know whatever that book was, um, uh, and and the third thing they're doing is going and poaching uh, proven authors. So uh, Brian McClellan is a really good example of this. He was with Orbit with uh, Davey Pillai, who came from Orbit several years ago over to Tor and has made her way up the ranks in Tor because she's freaking smart. Um, and she obviously went out and... and snagged him and and he's uh you know one of their big newer to tour not new author but new to tour author um so as far as i can tell tour has kind of settled into only picking up two three four debuts a year um and the rest are kind of some other channel of pulling authors in that they maybe have a little bit more security in terms of uh them being successful because they come in with a you know a, a pre-built uh following one way or another does that make sense totally yeah yeah and that's just my guess. And, and i i think other publishers probably have about the same number probably three to four maybe even fewer um lead debuts in any given year and so uh you'll tell the other ones probably aren't and probably wish that they were <laughs> <laughs> Well, something else I've noticed is the prevalence of book boxes 
especially on booktube mm-hmm. so illumicrate fairy loot i think there was owl crate for a while but i think that disappeared um uh book boxes services as well as subscription services so like the broken binding has is destroying the scene right now rightfully so um so i've always been curious oh, is there an echo suddenly yeah you guys is that on That's my weird. end here i'll hang I'm on not, and see, no, no. tell me if it goes well. Hello, hello. Okay, I echoed myself. I don't know why I did that. But, you know, I got to check. <laughs> um, so, uh, what was I say? Right, so I've always been curious what the, pro- I'm not sure if either of you are privy to this information. Maybe I'm just asking the question to the, the ether, but um, I've always wondered how people choose which books go in those book boxes because as someone who i don't really read ya so much anymore um uh, yes yes scott the echo is better yeah um i don't really read ya so much anymore but there would be books i wouldn't have heard of at all so maybe they're not a lead you know as you mentioned you know talking about who they pick who to really put the hype train behind but then they come out in a book box and suddenly everyone's holding it up and being like, I'm going to, this is on my TBR. This is a beautiful book. I want to read this. And that seems to have a huge effect on what people pick up as well and what gets on people's radar. Mm-hmm. So I've always been curious what the cross section is there, like how book boxes pick, you know, what they're going to release. Sometimes, yeah. you know, they're in the book box and then the hype goes away and you never hear about them again. But sometimes it really takes off from those yeah. and i don't know broken binding is doing that for uh indian self-club as well you know there's a lot of those books that get hype over there so i don't know so Anyone i'm have any thoughts hmm. I, i'm far from an expert on uh broken binding special editions and i think we have subterranean press here in the u.s um and i'm i'm certainly not an expert on on book boxes either but i have friends who are and who who have made it into them. Um, and what I gather from them is that book boxes, um, which everyone's in the UK, um, but book book boxes are much more prevalent in the UK and have a much higher subscription rate, uh, in the UK and they're fairly small in the U S. Um, and as far as I can tell, and from what this one friend who made it into a a book box um says is that it's all on the publisher's end and the publisher will go and pitch whichever they want um to these book boxes and say hey i think it's a good fit for what you're doing and that's kind of how they get in um so i i would imagine that more times than not um the books that get into a, a at least the especially the big crates right um are the ones that are being pushed harder by the publisher if it's a trad published i i have no idea on uh indie uh but i know that a lot of those book boxes you know they have they have acquiring editors or whatever they call them too uh, you know a similar role where and i'm sure they're hard at work reading through whatever's coming out and paying attention to booktubers and and reviewers and whoever else and and just pick up on whatever sounds cool and whatever sounds uh like what they want but i i think the bigger ones are orchestrated behind the scenes by um publishers and 
from what I can tell, mostly in the UK. Hmm. And again, that, that's sense. secondhand knowledge. Yeah. The yeah, UK I don't know. Ship, the shipping is horrendous, so that makes sense. Oh. All of them ship from the UK, and it's ugh. <laughs> I mean, it's all the same to me. Nothing, nothing is within Japan anyway. So I guess I shouldn't complain because it's all the same. But yeah, and sorry, I, I Cassie, didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, oh no, yeah. I just, I don't, I don't really know. I see it all on Instagram or Bookstagram. All these people with their fairy loot stuff, and they're, and I, I always wonder. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I can get my book into one of those. So that was a, a little good tip, Scott. And I actually wrote down broken binding in my notes. So I'll check it out. See what yeah, happens. I mean, yeah. Yeah, the Broken Binding has gorgeous books, right? And and amazing. And I have several friends who have made it into to that. And uh, I think the key is having UK distribution because they're a, a UK company. I don't know how their selection process works, though. Honestly, I don't know. I was really lucky to get in on the subscription because I said I wasn't really into why so much anymore. So a lot of the book boxes do focus on that. So I didn't have that much interest. And then the Broken Binding was like, hey, here's this adult fantasy subscription where you just get one book. And I was like, <gasps> so I was able to, to get in there. So, um, yeah, they it's it's worth the money, but it is money. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's definitely money. <laughs> Yeah. What's the other one in the UK? Uh, Goldsboro or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. They have some sub-services as well. They have some yeah. pretty beautiful books. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, the, both of them do um, custom editions. And they'll mm -hmm. usually do, as far as I can tell, they'll do print runs of like 500 to 2,000 ballpark. So not, not that many. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Special editions have... You know, I, I'm just a sucker. I like pretty things. So, you know, just take my money. But I have quite a few friends that are like, you know, it's not I'm fine because the inside's the same. Like, they don't really care. So it really just depends on what type of book collector you are. Yeah. Um, I find, but they've I definitely find it taken really, off. Yeah, I, I find that really interesting um, for debuts in particular. So brand new authors like, uh, uh, but I mean, they sell out super fast. Uh, but it, it's interesting to me just as personally, you know, that people are willing to shell out whatever, 50, 100 bucks for a, a copy from a, a brand new author. That's really interesting. Are you a sucker for those special editions, Josh? Yes and no. I mean, Matt's point in the comments is true. It's it's impossible to get on the Broken Binding sub list at this point. <laughs> I think we've all tried, but I do have some nice editions. I got the, the newest, the deluxe Lord of the Rings I don't, I don't know which anniversary, 60th anniversary edition, I think, that came out, the beautiful mm -hmm. red one. Uh, I do have some Easton Press. I only have one Folio Society. I do want more of those. But, uh, yeah, it's it's tough when you read as many books as I do, and I generally like physical books. So reading over 100 books a year and buying 90 physical books, it's hard to justify <laughs> buying the special editions as much as I enjoy them. But I, I will say a lot of times I do think it does enhance the reading process. Um, one of the ones I got last year was the, the centenary, the, all of the Robert E. Howard Conan, the barbarian stories, the beautiful leather bound. And I just felt when I was reading them in this beautiful leather bound edition, they just, I don't know, they felt a little more important to me than I think than if I were just reading a mass market paperback. So, um, I, I do have a few good ones, not as many as I probably like, but it is what it is. Right. Folio Society is a good one too. I have 
the one here, the Howl's Moving Castle. Why can't I point? There we go. Howl's Moving Castle Folio Society Edition. Those feel so good in your hands. There's just something about reading that deluxe, that deluxe feeling. It's different. It's definitely different. Yeah, can confirm we do have a signed copy of Cassie's book. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brandy. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting that I, since we're all, oh, sorry, go ahead, Steve. No, go ahead. Well, we're all readers, so I'm curious for you guys as well, readers as well as authors as well, but um, how, do you care about signed copies? Is that something that you really go after or is it something that, oh, it's signed, yay. You know, like what are your, your thoughts on that? Because I know speaking of Broken Binding, a lot of their initial marketing was not necessarily a special edition, but a signed edition. They were like, we have a limited number of these. Um, so I'm just wondering if, you know, of course, if it's from a friend or something, like PL was lovely enough to sign his copy of uh, Drowned Kingdom, which everyone should read, by the way, plugging another friend. <laughs> but uh, he was lucky enough to sign it. And that has sentimental value to me. So I really value that. Uh, but for me, I, you know, clearly I'm a fan of Brandon Sanderson. I don't really seek out his signed books or anything like that. Uh, so I'm wondering if for you guys, that's worth a premium or. I, I no, I agree with you. I think it's, if it's more personal where it's actually signed over to you rather than just, you know, a signature, that's more meaningful to me. Um, and I don't have that many signed editions. I don't really seek them out. I think if I were at a con or something and that was a, a way that you could meet the author or something, I think I'd rather do that. But um, I know a lot of people love those, but um, yeah, I'm kind of same as you. It's nice, but it's it's not as nice as if it were a, a true like, Josh, thanks for checking out my book or something like that. Yeah. I was at a con because um, I Comic Cons are great for my book especially at well fantasy in general and um timothy zahn who writes the star wars books he was like a couple tables down and i did kind of dork out over that because he's one of my if i read star wars it's usually his books and so i definitely got like a newer edition hardback and he signed it and he personalized it and i got a picture of him holding my book because of course i gave him a signed copy of my book um but in general, I don't hunt down the signed copies. I, I started collecting books more now that I'm um, into Bookstagram and always on it, trying to, you know, do my thing. And so I've kind of got into that, oh, I should go buy more books for my bookcase, you know, kind of a thing. And I've collected some of the ones that I really like. And if there was a signed edition, especially if it was personalized, of course, it would be really amazing. If there's a signed edition, I might pick it up, but I don't hunt them down, if you will. What about you, Scott? I was waiting to hear from you, Steve. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's same as, uh, as Josh and Taylor. If it's, if there's a personal relationship, there's, a, you know, if I had it signed like with Cassie's book or PL sent me a copy of his book that was signed and personalized, it's has a special place in my heart. But if it's, if it's like a secondhand thing where, you know, someone else had it signed and I end up with, it's not just, it's still cool. Don't get me wrong, but it's just not the same as having it, you know, you know, because, and of course, once it's signed, I won't touch it. So I have to, you know, leave it in good condition. So, but you know, having that, <laughs> um, having that connection is what matters to me and more than, than just 
having it signed. I'm really glad to hear all of your answers because I I felt like for a very long time I was the only one. You know, like uh, I I value that interaction I guess with with somebody who's either a personal friend or or I respect a, a great deal. But yeah, I I just don't get signed books. Uh, it doesn't matter at all to me. Um, and my signature is horrible. You know, the, the people who who didn't know me hadn't read my book. Whatever. Right when my book came out, I I got a bunch of messages like hey are you gonna you make arrangements for signed copies and i was like i guess like if you want it but my signature sucks like it, it's not gonna help it's <laughs> like I'll, I'll i'll have a one-on-one -on -one chat with you is that more meaningful because i feel like that'd be more meaningful but yeah I, it, it's a thing and that's great but i i totally don't care <laughs> the worse the signature I... the better sometimes yeah, more not, unique. Not mine. I'll see if I can find it. No. <laughs> I'm laughing at Matt's comment um, saying, I'm working on reanimating JR so he can sign <laughs> off my five editions of Lord of the Rings. And um, <laughs> that's interesting to me, too, is if the author has passed, I'm realizing this about myself now. Maybe I care a little more. Right. So if I were to find like a signed edition of Lord of the Rings, I'd be like, oh, my God, you know, that would affect me. I'm also a Lord of, big Lord of the Rings fan. So there's that as well. But um, I think, yeah, if it's like the chance has passed and then you find it, that would probably be more exciting for me, which is kind of morbid, like <laughs> that you care more after they're gone. <laughs> but I guess it's that way with art, too. Right. No one cared about Picasso until after he died. So, <laughs> um yeah, that I just realized that about myself. But yeah, I think that that matters to me too. I'd pay extra money for Robert Jordan books signed for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the I think the the biggest thrill I've had uh, doing this has been when an author mentioned it has my name in the back of the book. Uh, Chad Nicholas uh -huh. did that for his book Shade, and I almost had a heart attack when I was in the back of the book. So that was really neat because that's, you know, that lives forever. So that's, that's really cool. That's me, right? You can yeah, tell I, everyone. I almost, yeah, I was died. I told everyone who would listen to me, check this out. I'm in the, you know, so it's neat. <laughs> oh, who was it? For some reason, I'm blanking on both of the people involved in this interaction. So that, get, that gets rid of some of the context. But I did see once that there was a, a fan of like maybe an indie book. And then the author wrote the person into the book and killed them <laughs> as like, it was like his friend or something. And he was like, I got killed in my friend's book. Like really excited for the life of me. I can't remember who I think, had that interaction. I think that was uh, library of a Viking with Ryan K. Oh, okay. I think that's yes, it was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like, that's, well, that's, cool. that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. They auction stuff like that off on, you know, the world builders, uh, charity thing every now and then, and then a few different other formats. If you're not a, a fan of Rothfuss and his charity stuff anymore, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I am. I love Rothfuss's stuff, but yeah. And uh, mentioning Will of Time with with Robert Jordan passing before he could finish, would I wonder would you want someone to finish your series if you weren't able to finish it yourself? Or would you want it to go unfinished? You go for it, you for all of you. Yeah, for all of you. Just if you were 
started something and weren't able to finish it? Uh, for me, um, you know, my my books aren't big time, so it's not like it's a commercial decision uh, <laughs> like it is with or was with the Wheel of Time uh, and and various others. But for me, if like my wife or my daughter or one of my brothers that I, I'm very close with wanted to pick it up and finish it and we're going to do a good job, then yes. Uh, but I I wouldn't turn it over to another author. No. It's mine. <laughs> what about you, that's an, Yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting thought. At first, I was like, well... You know, if it was like a Brandon Sanderson, heck yeah, go ahead, finish my my series. But then what you said is like, well, this is all mine. You know, I don't want you touching it. Um, and I would love for my boys to to continue if I if God forbid if something happened if to write my books. But their grammar sucks, so I don't think they would do a very good job. I mean, their writing is awful. They've got the imagination. I'll give them that because they're total. You know, they're my go tos for magic systems and all that. But e. They can't write worth a darn. And I don't know if they can, you know, I, like my younger son, Chase, he can't even read cursive anymore. Like them printing, I'm like, oh, God, you know, not that they would print the book, <laughs> but I, yeah, that would be kind of a mess. But that is an interesting, I've never really thought about that before. Hmm. I don't so, know. It's hard to say. I was, I was just going to say, it's hard to. Yeah. Steve, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, no, I was just to say, it's interesting. Scott's answer was, if they do a good job, but, <laughs> you know, I'll be watching. Yeah, yeah. I will <laughs> hunt the shit out of you. Yeah, they come and haunt you if you don't. <laughs> right. I was just about to say, I don't think I'd have much choice in the matter. That's what I was gonna say, but um, I don't know. I haven't really. Um... <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no, that's no. Chago just commented, not even Richard. <laughs> so Richard and I are friends. Uh, you know, just obviously he lives in Australia, so uh, not in-person friends, but we've become friends uh, chatting over the internet over the last, I don't know, six, eight months, something like that. But on Twitter, we have a, a kind of feud going on, uh, especially did back in the day where we made fun of each other at any uh, possible opportunity. So that's funny, Chiago. Especially not Richard. <laughs> Fucking Richard. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, I was just going to say, I, I can't, it's hard for me to imagine because I haven't really put my that much blood, sweat, and tears into, you know, writing a, a project. But I imagine I would feel protective of it <laughs> as well. So. Yeah. I mean, there there's some authors that write, you know, that it they they see it as their job, and it's better than whatever other job they don't want to do, <laughs> uh, and so they'd be like, yeah, fine, whatever, you know, it's money in my my kids' trust fund, uh, and maybe that's the, a good way to think of it. But for me, right now, at least, like I'm I'm very emotionally attached to my work, for better or worse. What about you, Josh? Also, you me here's comment with. With oh. uh, just Mihir's comment with Petrick real quick. Mm -hmm. I think Petrick also was written into a book and was killed. I think that was another situation like that. So I think that's what that's referring to. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. No, Steve, I don't, I don't, I'm not a writer, so I don't know if I could really answer that question. Um, I know as a reader, 
I see both sides of it because I know we all want the ends of our series and so forth. And we see how well Sanderson ended the wheel of time, but it's also one of those, I saw an interview with Joe Abercrombie where someone asked him, you know, would you finish George Martin's series? If you know, you were asked and he said, those aren't my characters. You know, how could I write Tyrion Lannister? So I see both sides of it. And since I don't really have any skin in the game, I guess I'll just defer. <laughs> what if you were writing a song and you weren't able to finish it? It was your masterpiece. Actually, when you put it that way, it wouldn't be the same. Hmm. So I probably wouldn't want someone to finish it. You bring up a good question, though. You you brought up the inverse, right? Uh, of would you finish somebody else's? Hmm. That'd be tough. Yeah, that's even, that's even harder question. Yeah, because even, yeah. I mean, even Sanderson, as much as we love Wheel of Time, I love it. I have the, the Juniper editions up here. It's like the, the cornerstone of my bookcase. I love Wheel of Time. But even as well as Sanderson did, I mean, you could tell it was a different author and things felt very different. A couple characters didn't feel the same. And that was a very successful, I think, completion to a series. So... There's certainly a lot of risk if you're a writer taking over for somebody. I'm one of the few that both likes Brandon Sanderson a lot and does not love. Uh, I, I do not love those uh, final books. I I don't know very many that, that agree with me. So you're you're welcome to throw stones here. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was just too close to the Wheel of Time, I guess, and, and to that style. Um, but finishing a series for somebody else is a really good question, and that becomes a financial question, in my opinion. <laughs> Brandon, I mean, out of, out of you know uh, us five here, who read Brandon Sanderson's books before he finished The Wheel of Time? Zero. I don't think yeah. so. Zero. Think so. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so. <laughs> he you know he 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 was successful he was a good writer he was all that uh beforehand and uh whatever else but yeah finishing the wheel of time was a great business decision for him if somebody came to me and said hey scott for whatever reason based on your you know one book you have out uh george wants you to finish he's tired he just wants you to finish the series i'd be like yep sign me up when do you want it i think um if for me, and I, I think I saw a comment as well talking about um, what I was going to reference, which is, yeah, um, can I think of Game of Thrones? There we go. I would be afraid that if I finished something, it would end up like Game of Thrones season eight and people would hate me and hate it. <laughs> so I think for me, uh, I don't know if I would. I think my, I would be so anxious to get it right that I think it would affect me taking on the project hmm. if someone were to ask me uh, da uh, daniel has an interesting answer uh, alas i do not have an unfinished series to bequeath to anyone when i die but if i did i would want anyone everyone to finish my series like every single mm. person has permission to finish it i give it to the world see what? that's that's what i think an unfinished series is you know like for those years after rj died and it went unfinished it was my story, you know, like it, it ended however I wanted it to end. 
And our friend Chago says the the song comparison is great. Some someone might finish it, and it could be good, but it would be this. It could, uh, but it would never be the same thing. Very interesting. Yeah, I don't know that I want anyone to finish it. I'd rather just like kind of look similar to what Daniel thinks is just have everyone else just whatever they want it to be is what it is. <laughs> Yeah, it'd be it'd be tough to. Uh, the, uh, Matt mentions I can't imagine the pressure of completing a well-loved series. Yeah, that would be a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that would stress me out. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would handle that well. I'm having a hard time tonight with my own. <laughs> Try to like do that, right? <laughs> I had a friend once that said it's a lot easier to cry yourself to sleep in a Porsche than it is on the street. <laughs> <laughs> can't buy happiness but it can be damn near close right <laughs> yeah that also to me brings up the concept of ghost writing like there are some you know some people have mentioned it in um, lives we've done recently and uh, I don't know that's just such an interesting concept to me to write something for someone and then not put your name on it um makes you my, my dad has a theory like someone's got to be ghostwriting for sanderson because even he is aware of like that man because he puts you know his kickstarter and everything he's like there's no way someone writes that much he's like he's a ghostwriter i'm like dad <laughs> you're gonna get attacked <laughs> don't say that someone's gonna come at you on the street <laughs> um but it's just such an interesting concept to me and i I'm sure there's a lot more that goes into it that I'm not aware of, but for me, it would feel odd to put my name on something someone else has written. It would feel like a really strange thing to do. Yeah. When I was at, uh, in Denver for StokerCon, there was an author that I won't give his name, but he talked about he makes the most money from writing romance books. He pumps out romance books, has a formula that he follows, and ghostwrites. And that's where the bulk of his finances is, is money comes from is just pumping out romance books he's a horror author writing romance and just has a formula and he said it works out great he just pumps them out <laughs> so yeah. that was interesting I, and oh, then after he writes happens. them yeah like how do they choose what name goes on it then is there just like this yeah I'm not sure fictional person that people believe exists <laughs> it's like a pen name like i i don't really know how that would work <laughs> Yeah, I mean, pen names are very common. Drakeford's a pen name, and I don't, I don't really hide that at all. Drakeford's actually a family name, back a few generations, but yeah, my mm. my real name's Scott Smith, and turns out there's a lot of us. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I read something by a Scott Smith, the ruins or something like yep. that. Yeah, mm -hmm. yep, that's him. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the reason I'm Scott Drakeford. Yeah. <laughs> I would be nervous if I was having someone ghostwrite for me because you you talk to a reader or to somebody and they ask you questions about the book and if you don't know it inside and out, you, they might mm -hmm. stump you. That's what I would be really nervous about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, and yeah, it's just a business at that point, right? That'd be hard. That, that would be so, so embarrassing though. Like, do you remember what happened? Um, you know, in this plot, and you're like, no, <laughs> actually. 
Would you enlighten me in what happened in my own book? That would be wonderful. What did <laughs> be you very think awkward about it? Moment. That'd, be, yeah. that'd be tough. I always wonder, you brought up Sanderson, because Sanderson's co-authoring a lot of things right now, like with Jancy Patterson. He's done a few with her. I see a lot of bigger authors starting to do this. I think James Patterson has done this recently. Um, Lee Child did some of this as well. I just wonder of these authors, like what percentage are they writing or are they just giving the idea to this other writer, putting their name on it to sell it and the other writer is really doing the bulk of the work? I'm very yeah. curious about that. Yeah, my brother, he had he has written a couple books and he had mentioned that like, you know, you, you go to the bookstore and you see James Patterson and there's a thousand of them and they all have, a you know, another name on it. And what I heard is that he does, he gives the kind of general outline idea of the story and then he lets whoever write it. And then of course, then of course he'll go through and, you know, tweak or do what he needs to do. But yeah, the, the smaller name on the cover of the book did the bulk of the writing. I don't know how true that is, but that's just what I've heard. I think that's cheating, though. I don't think that's fair. <laughs> if you're going to have your name really big on it, you should do the most work. Whoever has the most work has the biggest name. I solved mm. that problem. <laughs> Seems like it would be like almost a symbiotic relationship in that situation, right? Because the person gets their work out more because that name is big on it, right? Yeah. Even though it doesn't seem fair. I'm not sure. I don't know. You might sell more. <laughs> but I'm James sure that Harrison asked me to do it, I'd do it. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I love Elantris. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'm part of the Elantris loving group. I know a lot of people hate that book, but <laughs> for the record, I actually did read Sanderson before the Wheel of Time. Tiago <laughs> <laughs> says, "Are you supposed to remember? I forget all the time." <laughs> Tiago, do you have a ghostwriter? <laughs> Are you confessing? <laughs> I think he's trying to tell us something. Uh, yeah. All right, guys. Well, I got to go. It's work time for me. So leaving a bit earlier than usual. But this was lovely. It was great to to meet all of you. Um, great meeting. I'll be following Likewise. you all on Twitter. So. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to you guys later. And see you soon, Steve. But okay, Thanks for stopping by, everyone. All right. See you. Great to meet you, Taylor. Have a good day. You too. Bye. 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 Oh, there's some Elantris uh, lovers out there. I've never read Sanderson, so are you a fan, um, Josh? I am. Um, he's he's not my favorite fantasy author. I mean, Robin Hobbs is my favorite fantasy author, but he's probably authors in general. He's probably like top ten for me. Um, he's just consistently good because he's such a good plotter and he does well with characters. Uh, I'm one of the few, maybe because I'm older, but I don't always like his, his magic systems. I think sometimes he, I think sometimes he falls in love with his own magic system a little too much. Um, I'm rereading Mistborn Era 2 right now because the Lost Metal's coming out in November. And I read the first book and there were times in it that you know, I was just bored because it just felt like he was so happy about his magic system. He just wanted to tell you about it. And I just wanted to get something character related or something a little bit more, you know, a little bit more depth to it, I guess. But um, I mean, when he's good, he's so good. I mean, there's the way of Kings is one of the best epic fantasy first books I've ever read. And so I do like him. He's not, you know, in my upper, my Mount Rushmore of fantasy authors, but uh, you know, I certainly do like him. 
my son um, Tyler is a huge Brandon Sanderson fan, and he keeps telling me, "Mom, you've got to read Way of Kings." I'm like, "Dude, it is that thick. Like, <laughs> that is a time commitment on that one." And even he, like, I think of the audio. He listened to the audio and it was like 50 hours or something ridiculous like that. So, I, you know, I haven't read any of Brandon Sanderson's, but someone said to start with Mistborn, if you know, um, if you're going to break into that his world, but I don't know. I, those really big ones they just kind of scare me. <laughs> I started yeah. with, I started with Mistborn and that was a good place to start. Well, actually I started with wheel of time, but for Sanderson's works, I started with Mistborn. I did enjoy that first trilogy quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mistborn's very good. And I, I have a, a good friend who, who likes to say that Sanderson is awesome at first books and then gets a little too into his world, you know, uh, mm. for some people at least. And I find that a little bit to be true. Like uh, I loved Mistborn, especially the first book. Um, but that, that trilogy was awesome, especially back in the day. I haven't read it for, you know, a decade, 15 years, whatever. Um, but it's fantastic. I laughed so hard at the alloy of law too. I loved that book. Um, but the, the successive, um, second generation or whatever you whatever you call the the later Mistborn books kind of lost me a bit and then the same thing happened with way of kings loved the first one liked the second one and then you know after that it got a little uh long <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think uh emperor's soul is his best work oh that's interesting yeah, that's my favorite of his. That's just a novella, and I thought it's fantastic. It's in the same world as as Elantris, and I think that's his best work. Um, just succinct, succinct storytelling and great characterization, and just a great narrative. And somebody mentioned Warbreaker in the comments, and that's a that's a really good one too. I thought that was very creative. Yeah. He's crazy creative. Yeah, you know, besides productive, he's very creative. And uh, Chiago is a pen name, and it wanted to sound exotic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure, sure, Chiago. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, you guys know Chiago? I I only know him a little bit. Yeah, we've. Yeah, I read I read his novella times. last month too. Yeah, fantastic writer. Yeah, I've got his I've got his book, but I I still need to read it. Like that whole shelf up there is part of my. TBR shelf, literal TBR shelf. I am so far behind. It's hard to keep up. It is so hard, so hard. As uh, as authors, how do you, uh, how deep do you get into a magic system? How how much time do you put into into that? Uh, well, I kind of wish I could go back to the beginning and really flesh out the magic system before I started writing the book. Um, Cause I'm kind of playing catch up. And so, you know, I, I had a general idea and of my, I have like 10 types of magic and some are um, physical and some are mental type magics. And, you know, I don't go super deep. I am not a huge district description writer. Like I don't, I don't like reading it. I, I get bored very easily. So I don't go into really deep description of every little nook and cranny of every little thing. So my magic systems, I think are pretty, I think they're pretty simple in the sense. And um, so I don't, but I do wish I would have kind of fleshed it out a little bit more and really like, how does this affect, 
you know, like, you know, they all have consequences and um, that sort of thing. But I wish I would have delved a little bit more into it and really got a f good grasp of it before I attempted writing these three books. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, for a fantasy author and reader, I'm not actually a huge fan of magic systems. Um, uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, won't, I won't go too much deeper in that, I guess, because it's kind of boring. But I, I modeled my, you know, being the the engineer nerd I am, I modeled my magic system after um, electromagnetism. Um, and, you know, just kind of got to thinking uh, why, about why we evolved to um, metabolize chemical energy primarily, right? Like our central nervous system obviously uses um, uh, electromagnetism to, to convey signals and, and do a whole bunch of things. But primarily our, our energy source at least is uh, chemical in nature, right? Um, so I just got to think like, why? Why is that the case? You know, if, if there are these other forces out there, why didn't we evolve uh, to be uh, more dependent or, or at least more in tune with those other, uh, natural physical forces. And I think it's very likely because they're relatively weak forces. You know, the electromagnetic field of, of the earth is actually relatively weak. Um, and it's only in our industrial world that electromagnetism has become a big deal. Um, which is actually really interesting to think about on, in the span of, of hundreds of thousands and millions of years, whether something else will evolve, uh, that, interacts more with electromagnetism. Um, but anyway, so I went, uh, I started rambling anyway, cause I, yeah, anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of tried to marry, uh, magic uh, based on electromagnetism and that thought of what if we could metabolize, you know, a stronger electromagnetic field and technology. Cause I really like fantasy, um, that has a strong tech angle, you know, um, and went from there. And so, because it's based on real things, <laughs> it was pretty easy to keep consistent, you know, and other than that, it was really just like Cassie said, you know, make sure there's a, a cost to, to any fancy magic abilities that these people attain or, or whatever to make the story still compelling, because if somebody's overpowered, it's just not a very fun story anymore. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you use the real limits of, of physics, it it uh, becomes a lot easier to manage as an author and uh, is a lot more fun for me, at least as a, a reader, if it kind of mimics our world a little more closely, more closely. Being an engineer would be writer. super helpful in creating these magic systems. And because you naturally, I mean, I, I graduated with a marketing degree and ironically, I hate the marketing part of the business, but um, there's, it's not really deep, you know, you just know how to sell stuff. But with engineering, you really kind of figure out how things work and how everything works together. And so I bet that helps with coming up with magic systems or even the tech part and all that, um, or at least it seems like it would to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, there's absolutely a built-in advantage to having gone through years and years of school and having to learn all that shit. Um, <laughs> Let's get it paid off. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might pay off. Hopefully it pays off. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But I mean, if I'm, if I'm being honest, I, I hated engineering too, at least as a, you know, a, an occupation. 
Mm. It was just boring, you know, it, 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 the worst combination of boring and high stress. Cause as mentioned, you know, you screw up, somebody dies and I don't want that on me. I'd, I'd much rather just have a web page not work or whatever <laughs> other shit I've screwed up. <laughs> yeah. A lot less stress that way. <laughs> uh, Josh, yeah. what do you, what do you look for as a reader in magic systems? What do you, what kind of magic system do you enjoy? I'll be honest. I prefer a soft magic system. Just, I, I still think Tolkien did everything <laughs> just so, so well. Um, I will say though, when it's done well, um, like in Mistborn, there are times where a hard magic system raises the stakes when you're thinking about the running out of the metals or whatever. Um, but overall, I just, I do prefer a softer magic system personally. Yeah. There were times where I was reading Stormlight Archive and I felt like I was watching a video game because I was thinking about energy levels and the power levels with the Stormlight and all of that. And I didn't like that aspect of it. A little too much. Uh, Mihir had a comment. Uh, James Patterson 100% never writes his own books. He kind of stops writing around 2006, 2007. Plus the co-writer has to sign an NDA so they can't reveal anything about the process how much money they got oh wow pretty good uh pretty good rack he has going on there yeah uh, daniel says brandon sanderson used a similar method as james patterson with some of his collaborations but he'll tell you all the details hmm. smart uh hey gareth uh it would be interesting to see if if any authors currently alive would give their blessing prior to their death or even a blessing to continue the stories in that universe is um would your is that an how is that protected um if something were to happen to you is is your ip protected somehow for from anyone else just uh publish yourself publishing a book in your world how how does that work is what what protections do you have for that so that that falls under copyright um and uh for original works it depends on whether you're writing under your name or uh, a pen name and I think there's some other things that go into it, like whether you are able to lobby with millions of dollars like Disney. Um, <laughs> but, and don't quote me on this. If you actually need to depend on this information, Google it. Cause I haven't looked at this in like 20 years. Um, but if it's under your own name, it's like 70 or 75 years after you die, that it belongs to you and your successors. And if it's a pen name, it's like 99 years from the date of publication. Um, it will belong to you and then, you know, be an actual IP asset that you pass on to whoever you want to pass it to. Does that make sense? Interesting. But I mean, that's, so that's, um, that's the copyright to existing works. I actually don't know how that works technically with uh, future works because for the most part, authors aren't really filing for trademarks. Like on some are, so when they get really big, right? But most authors aren't, and maybe that's that's why is there's not an issue with smaller smaller works. Nobody gives a shit. Nobody wants to finish it. Um, <laughs> uh, but me, and maybe that's where the line is. Is you know, if you get big enough, you start filing trademarks on your characters' names and on. Uh, on your series name and and all that kind of thing and and that's where it comes in but um yeah it, it, at the very least the copyright is pretty cut and dry 
I think it's interesting when you see copyright expire too, because didn't that happen with Gatsby a few years ago and people wrote sequels to it? And I just saw the copyright just ended on Winnie the Pooh and there's a horror movie coming out with, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I know in, in music, I, I think music copyrights 85 years, I believe with composers, but actually different countries have different rules. So yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, and I think I think the so again the character name and all that kind of stuff might actually fall under trademark, and I can't remember the the time periods on trademarks. I think it's like twenty years at a time, but they can renew it, and there might be only a certain number of times they can renew it. But if I remember right, Disney actually got like a special um, legislation, a special piece of legislation passed just for them. Oh, it was that's really? so surprising. <laughs> Disney's going to own the world soon, so. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, things do come out of copyright. Again, I don't know how fan fiction or or whatever you would want to call writing a a sequel, uh, an unauthorized sequel would be like. um, But I'd imagine there's some sort of inherent protection. Like, that's actually interesting with copyright. As soon as you write a thing, and if you can prove that you wrote it somehow, whether you, you emailed it to somebody or whatever, copyright actually exists just because you wrote it and have some sort of proof that you wrote it, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Trademark, I think you have to actually file. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, before we we go, I wanted to give uh, Cassie and Scott a chance to tell us about your books. What are your books about? Um, So we can look forward to, to reading them. All right. Well, Chasing the Darkness, I have a... I have a picture. My mic's on it, though. It's going to be back. Oh, it's not backwards. So there's Chasing the Darkness. Ah, look at that. And you have the good yep. mark. Um, it, this is Azrael, the angel of death, and he's an assassin who's just discovered his life's purpose is built on the life. So now he's on a path of either vengeance or redemption. So I've got magic, sword fights, romance. It's a medieval fantasy. Uh, it's the first in a series. It's currently now, it's paperback, ebook, and an audiobook. So yay. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I'm so in the hole. <laughs> Can't afford to publish. <laughs> oh my God, those are expensive. But um, anyhow, so yeah, Chasing the Darkness. And then the second one is Embracing the Darkness. So I went with the darkness theme. And that should be coming out. I'm hoping the end of October is the plan. Oh, I'm finishing up final edits. I'm going to send it to some um, ARC readers and start learning how to self-publish. So that's a whole new learning curve. It's why there's no time to write because there's all this other crap you gotta do (laughs) so anyway but yeah you like um anti-heroes with morally gray you know main character and assassins then chasing the darkness is for you nice talking my language and scott what about you that's amazing congrats cassie thank you so much appreciate it yeah of course so uh i've got rise of the mages um the probably the best elevator pitch I've heard recently for it did not come from me, came from a friend. He <laughs> said, uh, if you want Red Rising, Pierce Brown's Red Rising in fantasy form, that's the book for you. Uh, so it's it's a story about, uh, yeah, it, yeah, high praise, right? Like if I can live up to that, that's, that's amazing. I love Pierce Brown's stuff. Um, but it starts out with two brothers at a, a magical academy. One's an engineer. Uh, one's a warrior um, and a, a political power, a political person comes in and 
attacks the school, takes people prisoner, puts them to work uh, for a war effort uh, to further his own purposes. And the warrior then has to uh, rescue his engineer brother who is captured. And, you know, it's, it's very tech heavy, uh, but with a pretty traditional, um, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, maybe progression fantasy or, or adventure heroes journey fantasy. I tried to really blend my love of those traditional books, you know, uh, the Eddings, the Wheel of Time, that kind of thing with my newfound love uh, of more modern books like, an, you know, an Abercrombie, a, a Pierce Brown and those very fast paced, but still pretty deep worlds. Um, and it's very, very bloody, very uh, violent for those who aren't necessarily into those things. Um, but yeah, that's it in a nutshell. I'll have to get it for my son. He'll love it. That's right up his alley. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, Josh, tell us about your channel. What are you What are you up to other than your Malazan coming up in November? Yeah, that's that's going to be fun, um, that collaboration. I'm doing a live stream actually next Saturday, just a Q&A, just to celebrate hitting a thousand subs. But uh, what I said when I did a little video about it, I'm not really going to change much. I just primarily like to talk about the books that I love. You know, I was, for instance, I was going to do a review of Fairy Tale by Stephen King, but I didn't love it. I liked a lot of it, but I don't want to do a video. I'd, I'd rather do a video where I'm gushing about it. So I'm not going to do a full video on fairy tale, but uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that most. And then, you know, I'm going to refresh some of the things I did when the channel first started, do some author lists and things like that. And uh, just, just looking forward to the Malazan thing the most for sure. Yeah. It's quite the journey. Yeah. I had to, we got through the first three and I just had to take a little breather. So, but let me get back to it. It's those are the dense books, but yeah, it's quite, yeah, the, we're, quite, quite the journey. We're starting with, we're saying one per month at the start and then we'll, <laughs> we'll go from there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're dense. Oh, it's, it'd be fun. Uh, and congrats again for 1000 subs. That's, that's uh, really great. So good job. thank you. It's just great to have people to talk to books, you know, talk to about books. That's really what kept me going was the comments that every, every time I post a video, talking to people that, you know, read and love the same books that I do. You know, I have friends that are big readers, but we don't always read the same things. So being able to talk to dozens and hundreds of people that love the same books that I love, it's, it's just been fantastic. Yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, Cassie, if people want to connect with you, where's the best place to find you? So the best place to find me is at my website, which is CassieSanchez.com, C-A-S-S-I-E sanchez.com uh, i'm also on instagram and facebook at cassie sanchez author those are the two main ones i'm delving into the world of tiktok because that's where my readers are so i'm trying to <laughs> do those videos and all of that but <laughs> working on it anyway so yeah tiktok i'm there as well <laughs> but instagram's where i do m most of my daily posts and um and whatnot but yeah the website is where you can go find out all about me and the book and sign up for my newsletter and get all the updates on what is happening with the darkness world that I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and Scott, what about you? Where's the best place to connect with you? I am the worst self promoter in the entire world. Um, it's probably been like a year since I've posted on my website, so you can go there. I've written there sometimes, uh, but mostly, <laughs> Uh, you'll find a place where I'll get an email. I respond to emails really well. 
Um, but mostly I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter way too much. Um, and I, I'll, I'll see most everything directed at me there. Yes. And Josh, where's the best place other than your channel? Where's the best place to find you? Uh, Twitter. Yeah. I'm on Twitter the most. Uh, it's just a great book community there that I enjoy interacting with. Yeah. For as, as nasty as Twitter can get, there is a really great community there that is pretty, pretty supportive of each other. Found the right pockets, you'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. I think I found the right pockets. It's yeah. good. <laughs> I just found you and followed you right now. Okay. <laughs> so nice to meet you, Josh. Likewise. <laughs> now you'll be subject to all my shit posting. Love Uh-oh. it. <laughs> uh, see, see what you did. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, thanks to all of you for coming by. Thank you for taking time out of your Friday to come and just shoot the breeze with me. So always appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thanks everyone in the comments for coming by and, and Chiago for confessing about uh, your opinion. It was very exotic. <laughs> so, awesome. Thanks everybody. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Thanks Thank so much, you. Steve. Bye. Bye.